0: Hi, this is Chris Stewart from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Normally, this podcast is where we would post the teaching from the previous Sunday's message in our worship service that meets in the Athens Middle School. However, during this particular time in our nation's history, when everyone is doing their part to lessen the threat of the COVID-19 coronavirus. Our church is also making sure that every member is physically distancing themselves from one another. And in order to do that, we're setting up Facebook Live church services from my living room, in fact. And what we're doing with this podcast during this time is pulling the audio from the sermons on those Facebook Live messages so that you can still have your weekly podcast feed if you like to listen to those separately. We don't know how long this will last, but as long as it does, we'll keep posting these, and we hope that you enjoy them. We hope that you're fed and well-nourished while you're at home, and by all means, please reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email at oasisathens at gmail.com. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, We want to continue to serve and minister to the needs of our community, even during a time where it makes it difficult to do that in person. May God bless you today, and we hope you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. I am actually going to um, provide a message today from the Psalms. I know I've been bouncing around a little bit. We haven't really landed. Our normal way of preaching the gospel is to... uh, is to uh, typically pick a book of the Bible and just walk right through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and uh, preach expositorily. And uh, it, we've kind of all been thrown for a loop here in being so scattered out. And I know that, that some, I mean, you know, some people are bouncing around even on the internet. There's no real way of knowing if you're even paying attention to me right now. Like I love when I'm talking to be able to to have eye contact and eyeballs. And so if you see me looking in different places in our room, it's because every now and then I'll look at Kaylee over here, or Allie over there, or April over there, or, or Slugger down there, um, as as he was kind of stirring around there during during uh, worship. We have stuff kind of scattered out in our living room and different music stands and coffee tables and things like that to set up the cameras and all that. And Slugger got up from his his little nap that he took during the first two songs and was really confused about how he was going to get from this side of the room to that side of the room. And so that if you saw me kind of laugh during the song, that's what it was about because he was he had that confused look on him. If you know Slugger, you know you know confused looks. But the psalm, the psalm that I'm going to uh, read here in a little bit is from Psalm 55, um, and so if you want to put your thumb in that, uh, you know, you, you can turn to that, put your thumb in it, and we'll come back to it in a little bit. But I want to, I want to provide, I guess, what would be a considerable amount of, of background or. Um, I guess I want to illustrate what is being talked about here in psalm fifty five by telling you a, a story. Robert Schuler, who was the pastor at the Crystal Cathedral, and he had uh, an online or a television ministry as well. and and uh, I actually got a chance to visit that, that cathedral when I went out to Anaheim, California several years ago and um, and across the street from that particular from that particular building was, Another tower that was uh, a Spanish, it was part of the, the Crystal Cathedral, uh, that ministry, um, but it was their Spanish tower, and the pastor in that place was Juan Carlos Ortiz, and so I got a chance to, I, I had read his book Disciple, and, uh, and I just loved that it. it was very transforming to me, I'd actually read it about five or six times, it was so, it was so good. And when I learned that he was the pastor at the Spanish portion of that uh, near the Crystal Cathedral, we wanted to go and visit. So we just kind of popped in and, and went up the elevator, and the elevator opened up literally right in his office. We, the elevator doors opened up, and there I am staring at Juan Carlos Ortiz, and, uh, and he was like, hello. And, and that's, I don't know if that's something you could actually do today, but uh, it, was, it was kind of a cool thing. At any rate, that's who Robert Schuler is. In uh, 1982, um, Robert Schuler was scheduled to speak to about 3500 members of the agricultural industry and it was it was a harsh harsh summer if any of you remember 1982 I was 10 years old but some of you were maybe a little older and you might be able to remember it a little bit better. Um, For many people in that time, it felt like the clocks had been rolled back to the 1930s for many farmers in that time. And the 1930s, as we know from our history classes, uh, was the Great Depression. And companies in in 1982 were declaring bankruptcy day by day. Unemployment numbers were soaring to unimaginable heights. And at the time, the media was calling it, and the only media we really had at the time was was what you read the newspapers and what you saw on the, the network television um, but they were calling it a severe and prolonged recession. And it was a time that was causing waves of depression across America. Well, when Shuler arrived at the Hilton Hotel in downtown Chicago to speak to these 3,500 farmers, uh, he was greeted by two representatives of the group. And and he expected a warm, inspirational evening that was quickly changed because of this greeting from these two men. After they exchanged their preliminary hellos and their greetings, they uh, they said to him, uh, hey, Dr. Shuler, um this is kind of what we're expecting today. There are 3,500 people that are in this room behind us, and they're going through some really, really tough times. And then one of the men said, these people are going through incredibly tough times and they don't want to hear your funny stories. They don't want to see you grinning from ear to ear like you do on television. They don't want to pat on the back with a hollow promise that everything's going to be okay. And then the other man jumped in and he added, they need help. They need hope. Give it to them. That's... I think that's pretty relevant. <laughs> you're, you're participating in this online service today, I don't think by accident. If you're, if you're participating with us, you're, you're here by God's design. And it's possible that you're here fresh off of losing your job or with coming to a lot of questions, coming with a lot of questions and wondering what's, what's life going to be like for me in the next, well, from now on. Maybe you feel like those farmers, and you need, you need hope, and you need help. Maybe you're not presently experiencing severe difficulties personally, but in all likelihood, you will soon. As we said last week in, in the book of James, uh, trials will come. It's not if trials come. They're inevitable. They are coming. So what I'd like to do is I would like to continue to share with you how that speech went that Dr. Schuler gave, because he actually wrote a book about it, And the book is titled, Tough Times Never Last, But Tough People Do. As he walked out behind the podium and he began to speak to the packed to capacity room that day, he decided that he would, of course, set aside his prepared message and he would tell them a little bit about his life having grown up in a farm, on a farm out in Iowa. I don't know how much you know about Dr. Robert Shuler, but this is his story as a child. And I'm going to tell it as though he's telling it. So I'm going to be doing quite a bit of of what would be reading from, from the book. He said, farming life has never been easy. My boyhood farm was a typical Midwestern farm, which meant it was small. The industry was not simple crop farming. Our crops were harvested to feed livestock. Chickens laid the eggs, which were traded for groceries. Cows grazed the grassland along the river that was too difficult to plow. And we milked the cows and sold the milk. When the hogs reached their prime weight, they were sold on the market. It was a one crop a year farm, which meant that we planted the oats and the corn in the springtime and harvested it in the fall to be gathered into our barns and saved to feed the hogs. The winter season was merely a time of survival and just waiting for the hope of spring. Well, my father, he said, purchased our farm when prices were at their peak. Real estate had been climbing steadily, and he said I was born only a few years later, and that year was... 1926, September 16th of 1926. He said, how my father had enough money to buy our farm is a story in and of itself because he lost his parents as a teenager. Dad was forced to drop out of school in the sixth grade and find the only job that he could as a hired hand for a local farmer. And, uh, all he could do, pretty much, all the only job you could find was to, to husk corn, which is basically ripping it from, from the ne- its nest of leaves, cracking off the six-foot uh, stem, and throwing it into the wagon. And he said, my father was a thrifty young man, and he was able to save a few nickels and dimes that he had earned each year uh, with each ear of corn that he picked. And he just continued to stack that money up and save it. And finally, when he had saved enough, he was able to purchase a 160-acre farm. Well, unfortunately, he bought that farm at the top of the price cycle. And when I was three years old, Schuler said, the Great Depression hit. Real estate prices plummeted, along with all the stocks, while internationally famed corporate chiefs were committing suicide in Wall Street. Farmers everywhere, um, America's original small businessmen, were clinging with broken fingernails to the earth, hoping to survive. And he said, my father was one of those tough, tenacious farmers. Winter was the worst. I'll never forget the times when we didn't have enough money to buy coal, he said. The trees that surrounded the house were considered precious living creatures that couldn't be sacrificed for fuel. So we never actually considered cutting down those trees and putting them into our wood burning stove. Instead, my job as a child was to step over three foot high splintered wooden fence out in our yard and climb into the hog yard among the 100 squirming and squealing hogs. And with an empty basket, I maneuvered my way through the excrement, picking up every corn cob left after the hogs had consumed all the kernels of corn. Not a single cob was left uncollected. Every single cob was considered of real value. When that basket was filled, I would carry it back to our tiny little two-story home. And there, my mother, brothers, and sisters would would hover around the living room. And the corn cobs would fill the stove in the kitchen. And they would be used in the old potbelly stove in the little living room that we had as well. And those were the only two sources of heat in the house. The little grills in the ceiling allowed some heat to pass through from the downstairs kitchen into the living room and in the upstairs bedrooms but the cracks in the walls of my bedroom were too large and they brought in more freezing air than the warmth of the the heat could Hmm. combat so he looked at that crowd and he said do you want to hear about my experience with poverty to 3500 businessmen he said this has been my experience with 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 poverty Let me tell you a little bit about poverty. I was so poor that we had to use corn cobs to heat our homes to keep from freezing to death in the sub-zero winters. We used corn cobs because we could not afford coal. Those were tough times, I said. Then Shuler recalled the years of the great drought. Even as the economic depression continued to ravage the country, the Iowa farmers fought an even tougher battle, and that was, for reasons they could never understand, the normal spring rainfall never did come, and it never came to moisten the the newly planted corn and oats, and so all the, the, the few precious dollars that my father was able to save, Shuler said, had to be spent on seed corn. And he said, I always wondered how my dad would dare to risk throwing that seed into the ground where it might rot and die when he could safely bring it to town and convert it to cash. Why take a chance? I asked my dad. And he said, you know, Shuler said to his dad, why don't you play it safe and sell it? And his dad replied, people who never take a chance never get ahead. Of course, there's no success without the application of the multiplication principle. And so it was a natural, basic principle that every farmer understood, and his dad just couldn't fathom uh, doing that. And so he, he decided to, to plan it. So in the springs of 1931, 1932, and 1933, he said, "'My father took all that he had left, "'the last kernels of corn, the last cups of oats, "'and he planted them in the ground "'in his small Iowa farm, "'expecting that the rains would fall in the spring. "'He hoped that those seeds would become wet "'and bloated until they erupted with new life, "'sending their little tender sprouts "'up through the softened spring soil. "'Light green rows of corn would begin to grow "'and stand out against the black background "'of the Iowa ground.'" Rainfall of course, is essential to a farmer's success. Iowa farmers can expect rain to fall at least once every other week. If for some reason the rain didn't fall once every three you know three or four weeks, at least an inch uh, at least an inch or so of the topsoil would begin to dry out And if rain still didn't come, the soil would gradually grow dry at two, three four and five inches deep until what would happen is the hair-like tentacles of the roots of the new corn, that had been planted, they would die. And the first evidence of death would be uh, the death, first evidence of death of the roots would be a wilted leaf. But when the rains didn't fall for two weeks, Shuler said, My father was worried. Then, when the third and fourth week came with no rain, I saw his face grow very grave. Not once did he become angry, never did he miss praying with bowed head at the table before our morning, noon, and night meals. The only thing my father did about the drought was pray. The only thing he could do was pray, and so that's what he did. He gathered with other farmers. They would come from miles around at special prayer meetings, filling the little white churches that dotted the the rolling landscapes of of Iowa in that day. And and out of respect, he said, even out of of sort of respect and reverence to God, each farmer came, not in his overalls, but he put on his one and only suit and tie to come and pray and call upon God Almighty to save their land and their crops. They would just ask him to send rain. Then all they could do is go back home and wait for his answer. For a whole year, for a whole year, the Lord was silent. Day after day, the sun bore down on the crops. Every day, we scanned the the sky looking for any sign of a cloud he said, when I was a kid, more than one time, I would look out into the, into the sky and I would see a little cloud begin to form. And I'd run back into the house and say, Dad, I see a cloud. I see a cloud. God might be answering our prayer. But then he said the cloud would ultimately dissipate and, and go away. Well, finally, as if a, an act of our prayers were being answered, he said, there was, a, there was a gathering of clouds one day, and hope began to rise again. The desperately needed rainfall was moving in from the west, and flashes of lightning slashed through the black sky, thunder cracked, and trees trembled with the, with the fright of the wind as it whipped through their branches, and it rained. I was jubilant, Shuler said, but my father did not share my enthusiasm, neither did my mother. He said, they knew what I didn't know. That rain was actually totally inadequate. When the last thunder had echoed in the distance signaling the passing of the storm, the sun came back out bright and hot again. and We walked outside. He said, I walked outside with my dad and my father reached down and he scooped up a handful of the wet, moistened surface of the soil and only a top quarter of an inch was wet and black. Below that, was the, the, earth, the earth was just powdery and dry. And he said, then, then the winds began to blow. We didn't know where they came from, but all of a sudden the sky turned bright blue and then a dab gray and then a dirty brown. And the clean, bright air that I enjoyed breathing as a child, all of a sudden became polluted with dust and it just kept blowing and blowing and blowing. And my father said, that's the South Dakota land that you're breathing, son. South Dakota, the state that bordered Iowa on the northwest, was suffering a far worse drought than Iowa. And, and Schuler said, even I didn't, and, you know, I didn't, uh, we did, they, they didn't even enjoy the, the sporadic little sprinkling of showers that would at least come and moisten the land of our, of our state. But he said their barren land was completely devoid of any vegetation whatsoever. And they just laid helplessly with, uh, w- with, those, with those winds that, that continued to blow. He said the winds kept blowing harder and harder, and dust would just sandblast everything. All of our corn that had managed to survive the drought, the fragile young plants, they just wilted and weakened, and and they just finally died. They were just longing for some kind of refreshing water to to come and 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 uh, save them, but there just wasn't any match for the 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 hot the heat and the winds, and it was just total devastation. He said here and there, like bones of a dead animal, just dead corn stalks protruded above the drift of the dry sand that had blown in from the winds. And he's like, still, those winds just didn't stop. They just kept blowing. And he said, it became a common procedure for my brother and sisters and me to just kind of go outside with covered faces. With we'd, we'd wet a cloth and cover our faces. And as we'd walk for the short distance from house to house, you know, from outside our house, he said, whenever we'd got to the outdoor toilet, we would go out and we would cover our faces with a damp cloth, but when we come in, we would be choking from from breathing in that dusty, moistened mask air. He said our water uh, became more and more scarce as the snake of the Floyd River had begun to just dry up. He said the Floyd River was my closest friend as a child. I would often go down its banks near open pastures and I would lie down on my back in the green grass, just watching the clouds take shape in the sky. And it was there that I felt closest to my creator. He said, I I became just addicted to God's natural green gardens and the outdoors. And years later, he said, I would just hope for a place where I could worship God and see the sky above me day and night. But he said, during the The summer of the great drought, I just watched the river just completely dry up, and little pools of water became mud holes where squirming bullhead catfish died. We were surrounded by death everywhere. The river was dead, the fish were dead, and most importantly to us, our crops were all dead. Summer finally gave way to fall, nationwide newspapers were proclaiming the Midwest Farm Belt to be a total disaster. Even the New York bankers and corporate chiefs became concerned about a plague that was, that was coming, that was going to be as great, if not greater, than their own economic depression from this drought. The breadbasket of America was in ruins. If it had been a normal year, he said, my father would have expected to harvest corn that would, feed, uh, that would fill dozens of wagons. That year, my father harvested barely a half a wagon of corn grown on a half acre of ground. In a normal year, this swampy lot fed by some mysterious underground spring was too wet to produce any fruit at all. So this one spot wouldn't actually produce anything in a normal year. But in this particular year, he said, he said, actually my father had thought about digging that plot up and, and draining it. But now in the year of the drought, that was the only small little plot of, of, of ground that was able to produce a little bit of corn. Out of our whole 160 acres, only that had survived. He said, here, corn had lived, drawing moisture from some subterranean source underneath. And that corn grew nearly six feet tall. And he said, here is the only minuscule crop that we had. It was a half a wagon of corn. Wasn't a total disaster then, his father said. For half a wagon of corn is better than, any, than none at all. In fact, it was, it was equal to the amount of seed that had been sowed earlier that year. So total loss? No. He said, we gained we gain nothing, but most importantly, we lost nothing. And he said, I'll never forget my dad's dinnertime prayer that night. He said, we bowed our head and he said, dear Lord, I thank you that I have lost nothing this year. You've given me my seed back. Thank you. Well, he said, not all farmers had as much faith as my father did. We saw for sale signs begin to appear farm after farm after farm. Discouraged farmers who couldn't imagine that things would ever get better just packed up and they abandoned their land. Other farmers just threw up their hands in despair and allowed the bank to just foreclose on them. And more than one piece of property sold, uh, was sold that year on the courthouse steps. Years later, he said, I asked my father how he had survived. I mean, after all, he had no cash reserves, he had no savings, he had no rich relatives. And this is what he said He said, I went to the bank. And I promised them that if they would help me, somehow I would return their money. I, I pleaded with them to refinance, to re- rearrange our mortgage, to postpone the due dates. And for some reason, the, bel- the bank believed in me and they helped. And Shuler said, I remembered that bank. I remember early in my childhood having memories of going in that bank with my patched up overalls with my father. And I recall seeing a, a slogan on a sign or on a calendar in that bank, and the slogan was this, great people are ordinary people with extraordinary amounts of determination. And he said, I'm convinced that that slogan exemplified the positive attitude that my father had, and it inspired those bankers to go along with him and go ahead and give him an extension on his mortgage payment. And that slogan was an explanation of my father's success and an inspiration to me to attempt the impossible too for I had dreams of my own. I wanted to go to college, he said. I wanted to go to seminary. Well, he said several years later, on a quiet June afternoon, a tornado struck. I had unpacked my suitcases, having returned home from uh, my, my, uh, uh, for summer break um, from my college studies. I had, I had gone to college like I had hoped. And he said, throughout the afternoon, my dad and I could hear an, just sort of an awesome roar reverberating like the hum of, a, of an organ. And it was an eerie sound like many freight trains just rumbling across uh, up in the sky among the clouds. And he said, my dad said, sounds like we're in for a hailstorm. And in a desperate attempt to protect his his roses, we rounded up uh, empty pails and wooden boxes to cover all the bushes. And it was about six o'clock. We had finished our evening meal. We hurried so that we could kind of hover in and protect ourselves. And he said, from the vantage point of our front lawn, we could see more than a mile across the rolling farmland. So the sun was 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 gone now. It was sort of swallowed up by the black storm that was coming in from the western sky. And he said, slowly with an alarming stillness, like a tiger crawling up on its prey, the storm just crept slow closer to us and closer to us. Gusts of hot wind blew the dry dust of the country road. in the old The old, uh, everything was just, was, 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 was starting to pick up. And he said, out in the pasture, we could hear a cow bellowing, calling her little calf to come beside her for safety. He said, my riding horse seemed to sense the impending disaster. He cut a commanding picture standing erect with his head held high and his graceful neck arched and his tail lifted just slightly fanning in the wind. His ears were searching the air for sounds of danger. And he said, Suddenly, up in the sky, this black lump about the size of the sun, as you could see it from your perspective, bulged out of the black sky. And in an instant, it telescoped to the ground in a long gray funnel. And for a moment, it just hung there suspended like a serpent about to strike its victims below. And my dad called to my mom, Jenny, it's a tornado. I asked him excitedly, are you sure it's a real tornado, Dad? My first emotion, Shuler said, was was sort of delightful excitement. I had never seen anything like this, and it'd be something to tell the fellows when I returned back to college in the fall. And the funnel seemed so small that I couldn't imagine, he said, the fury that could be unleashed from from such a tiny, funny cloud. Well, my dad said, call your mother, son, and tell her to take whatever she can grab and come to the car. We got to get out of here right away. Well, a moment later, we were all in the car driving crazily down the road. We lived on the east end of a dead end, and we had to drive a mile west directly into the path of this oncoming tornado in order to reach a side road that led south away from the path of the storm. And we made it. Well, two miles south, we parked our car up on the crest of a hill, and we watched the wicked twister spin its killing power. As quickly and as quietly as it had dropped, it lifted up and It disappeared. It was all over. The storm was gone. The air was deathly still, but the danger was, was past. At this time, gentle raindrops began to fall, and the tail end of the dark sky dropped a, a soothing shower of cool rain as if heaven were, were pouring out a, a soothing balm of, of, onto fresh wounds. We could go home now, but, oh, God, will we find our house, his dad asked. Well, we reached the crossroads only to find a long line of cars, a bunch of curious sightseers sensing that something terrible had happened, and already they were gathering to take a look. They were looking at the complete destruction of a neighboring farm. We had wondered if our house had been spared. We drove down the lonely road, crisscrossed by wires from broken telephone poles toward our secluded farm, and we came to the base of the hill that hid the view of our house. Now, before, we had been able to see the peak of our barn but not now. We knew before we ever went over the hill that our barn was gone. Now we were on top of the hill and we saw everything. It was all gone. Everything was gone. Where only a half an hour before there had been nine buildings freshly painted, now there were none. Where there had been life, there was only the silence of death. It was all gone, all dead. Only the White foundations remained, lying on a clean patch of the black ground. There was no debris. Everything had simply been sucked up and carried away. There were three small little pigs that were still living, and they were suckling the breast of their dead mother, lying in the driveway. We could hear the sickening moan of, a dying, of dying cattle everywhere, and the hiss of gas escaping from the portable tank of butane that used to provide fuel for our stove. And then I saw my riding horse, Shuler said lying dead with a 14-foot-long tube before piercing his belly. we were all dazed, our brains reeling as we sat in our car. My father was past 60 years old and had worked hard for 26 years to try to win this farm. The mortgage was about due, and this seemed to kill all chances of ever saving the place from the creditors. I looked at my dad just sitting there, horror-stricken stricken behind the steering wheel, white-haired, underweight from overwork, his hands blue, desperately gripping the steering wheel of the car. And suddenly those calloused hands with their bulging blood vessels began hitting the steering wheel of the car. And my dad cried out, It's all gone, Jenny. It's all gone. 26 years, Jenny, and it's all gone in 10 minutes. And then dad got out of the car, ordering us to wait inside the car. And he walked with his cane around the clean-swept, tornado-vacuumed farmyard. And we later found out that our house had actually been dropped in one smashed piece about a half mile out in the pasture. We had a little sign in our kitchen, on our kitchen wall. It was a little molded piece of plaster, and it had a motto on it. And its simple little verse said this, "'Keep looking to Jesus.'" Well, my dad rooted around out in the field, and he found part of that sign, and he picked up the broken piece and brought it back to the car, and the broken piece said, keep looking. Well, this was God's message to dad. Keep looking. Keep looking. Don't quit now. Don't sell out. Dig in and hold on, and that's what he did. People thought my dad would for sure be finished, but he wasn't finished. He wasn't finished because he would never give up. He had faith with hanging on power. And there's one ingredient in that mountain moving faith, miracle generating faith, earth shaking faith, problem solving faith, and situation changing faith. There's one ingredient that it must have, and that ingredient is a holding power. And my dad didn't quit. He said, two weeks later, we found in a nearby town an old house that was being torn down. A section of it was available for sale for $50. So we bought this remnant and we took it apart piece by piece. We saved every nail, every shingle, and from all these pieces, we took it back to our, our old farm and we built ourselves a little house, one by one. Additional buildings, one by one, were built. Nine farms were demolished in that tornado but my father was the only farmer to rebuild a completely demolished farm. A few years later, prices would then rise sharply, farm products prospered, and within five years, the mortgage was paid off, and my father died a successful man. So then Robert Schuler looked out at that crowd and he, he asked them, so, you're having tough times, I hear. Are they tougher times than my father experienced? And he said he looked deeply into the eyes and the hearts of a new generation of Iowa farmers, and he asked them, are you burning corn cobs for fuel? Have you lost everything in a tornado? Is the mortgage due and the cash just not there? Are you tempted to walk away and put the place up for sale? Then let me tell you something about tough times. I believe that I've walked a path of tough times, and I have earned the right to comment on tough times. Let me tell you something about tough times. Tough times never last, but tough people do. That's the message that the psalmist cries out in Psalm 55. And we actually learn in this psalm how this is true, how tough people last. I want to read a few of these verses before I I conclude. Verses 1 through 8 says this. This is David, by the way, King David. God, listen to my prayer. Do not hide from my plea for help. Pay attention to me and answer me. I am restless and in turmoil with my complaint because of the enemy's words, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down disaster on me and harass me in anger. My heart shudders within me. Terrors of death sweep over me. Fear and trembling grip me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, if only I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and find rest. How far away I would flee. I would stay in the wilderness. I would hurry to my shelter from the raging wind and the storm. I'd escape. It's painful. So I would escape. David's admitting it. That's what I would do. But then we find out later in verse 22, the result of all of his complaining to God and crying out in turmoil, this is the end of his prayer. This is what he resolved to do. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. My prayer is that you will lean heavily on this psalm today, that you will rest on this psalm today, that you will rest in this psalm. Let it comfort you. Let it minister to you as an example of the reality that that pain and difficulty are just not unique. They're not. It's time that we're in, it sucks. That's not unique. And, and honestly, this is why we sing. You know, this is why we love singing songs and we love worshiping in this way. Worship can happen in more ways than just singing. Of course, it's a sacrifice and it's, it's, the Romans says Paul says in Romans that it's a it's a sacrifice of your life provide you know offer your life as a living sacrifice of worship to your God and so everything that you go about doing today is is worship but one of the reasons why we in particular love singing is because is because of what the psalmist provides us I mean we have an entire book in our Bible that's devoted to singing that's what we just read it was a song. It was his prayer that became his song that God will comfort, God will sustain, and he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And so singing brings this healing to our spiritual and emotional wounds. Singing brings us together whenever we can't be together, it brings us together in some powerful and supernatural way. It gives us a creative means to just proclaim who we are and what we believe. And in many ways, it's through singing songs that we tell our story to the world around us. And so my prayer is that you would embrace all of these songs that we've sung today and that you would embrace the, the, the final song that we sing here together as we conclude our time. And I mentioned a few weeks ago a few weeks ago. It was like 10 weeks ago now. Uh, it was one of the first weeks that we were together. And we were scattered and separated from one another in uh, this situation that this was a song that I had actually um, um, sat up on the edge of my bed one day several years ago and wrote out just because there was, such a, there was something special about just being together. And so I just started writing words about what it's like to be together and what it means to be the church when we are together. And it's a little ironic that I would choose to sing this song a few times when we're not, we've not been able to be together. We're, we're separated from one another and we're scattered from one another, and yet the song is still true. And remember, there was a period of time in the first century church in the book of Acts, chapter 1, you could read about this. In, or in the book of Acts between chapters 1 and 8, you can see sort of the, some of the stories of how this took place as persecution came upon the church. And And don't get me wrong, this this COVID-19 crisis and the governor's orders and things like that, it's not persecution to the church. It's a completely different scenario, and we can't compare the two things. It's apples and oranges. But but when if, if we were ever told to stop preaching Christ, because it's, it would be against the law for us to do so, then yeah, you know, to, to stop meeting together because we're going to be, you know, because Christ is not is not the truth to the true uh, gospel. The gospel of Christ is not true, and therefore you need to stop, uh, close your church doors. Then we could say, okay, that's persecution, and we would need to defy that order. This is not what this has been, as I've mentioned before. But to go back to that comparison in Acts. The church was scattered because they were being killed. They were being arrested and tried, and well, not even given trial, just just killed. And uh, a few times they had an opportunity to speak. The one guy who had an opportunity to speak spoke pretty boldly and 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 uh, answered a lot all of all their questions pretty pointedly. And they got so angry at him they threw him down to a pit and stoned him. It was Stephen, and uh, the church got really frightened after that and they decided to kind of hide in homes. And ironically enough, as the church was scattered, it grew tremendously more than it was growing when they were meeting together publicly. And it's an amazing thing to consider that even when we're scattered, Christ, the message of Christ, binds us together, brings us together. And so that's how we're going to conclude our time today. We're going to conclude our time by reminding ourselves of of that word. And I invite you to sing, and then we'll pray, and we'll be done. And you can enjoy your afternoon, and hopefully some of these songs will remain in your mind this afternoon.